1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From the self-help industry to the contemporary focus on mental health, the ancient Greek maxim, know thyself, is very much in fashion. But is it possible? We can't really catch sight of ourselves, and the attempt to do so often leaves us lost. What's more, like the notorious serial killer, Ted Bundy, individuals can be well aware of their failings but unable or even unwilling to change. So, should we see knowing ourselves as a dangerous philosophical mistake and instead focus on specific and practical change? Or is knowing ourselves not only a real possibility, but a vehicle for improving our lives? Joining us to debate, the notion of self-knowledge, our author of The Master and His Emissary, Ian McGilchrist, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Antwerp, Ben Sennanet, Emerita Professor of English at the University of Texas, Betty Sue Flowers and famed author and science journalist, Anil Ananthaswamy. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv for hundreds of podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Mary Jane Rubinstein.
0: Okay, so here we go, in McGillchrist. in three minutes, could you possibly respond to the question, is it possible for us to know ourselves?
2: Most questions of the highest importance, such as concern the nature of God or love or the self, can never be fully answered, but that does nothing to diminish the critical importance of asking the question. About self-knowledge, there are two different but profound questions here. One is general, the question Plotinus asks in the third century, but we, who are we? I believe it's our utter failure to understand who we are that constitutes a major cause of our current plight and of the world that is our home. The other is individual, who, in particular, am I? People with no self-knowledge cause suffering for themselves and those around them, and make poor members of the society. The self is in no sense atomistic, but grows out of a culture and a society and contributes in turn to making that culture and that society. Jung made an important distinction between the self and the ego. The ego is predatory, self-centered, and a regrettable necessity in the earlier phases of psychic development but can and should be let go of with the attainment of maturity. The self, however, is something that it is arguably the task of our lives to grow, to nourish and to fulfill. Those who have no sense of self are not wise, but either psychotic or emotionally unstable and borderline personalities. Catching sight of oneself is an interesting phrase, isn't it? It suggests the self as an object to be glimpsed from the outside. One's self is, however, the experience of a process from the inside. And neuroscience, therefore, cannot address the question of what is the self, though the hemisphere hypothesis can explain why certain answers are more likely to be mistaken than others. There I distinguish between the self at any moment in time as the will in action, an expression of the left hemisphere's need to bring power to bear on the world, and the self as a continuous flow over time, analogous to a piece of music, not composed of time slices or having to be reinvented and recomposed again at every instant. That time-sliced vision of the self is how it appeared to Descartes, how it appears to subjects with schizophrenia or autism, and to those with left hemisphere damage. To them, the self does come apart and seems to be an illusion. But it is far from being so. It is something we must grow and grow into before we can ultimately aspire to transcend its limitations.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Betty Sue Flowers, would you address, please, in three minutes, the enormous question, is it possible for us to know ourselves?
3: Well, I think it's possible to know some aspects. By the way, Ian, that was really beautiful. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed that very much. But I think of the self as tripartite, really. There's a part of the self I would call being, not the being, but being. And I think like dark matter, we just, we really, (laughs) we don't know what that is. We don't know at any given moment what the hundred trillion bacteria are up to. Who have more DNA in our bodies than we do? We don't. We have no clue as to exactly how we're connected. We're finding new things about our relation to ourselves and each other all the time. So I think there's a huge aspect of um, this thing we call self that we just we we just don't have a clue. We have to have some humility about that uh, being. And then there's a second aspect that that is very like what what Ian was talking about which I call the bundler <laughs> which is just kind of a construct really it's sort of a theoretical gathering together of our sensations and our it's that musical thing through time it's memories it's a little ad hoc sometimes but there's enough memory there's enough glue there that at any given moment the bundler manages to get us through the world and to exercise some kind of Will And normally when we talk about self, we talk about this bundler, but there's another part of self in this tripartite structure um, that we can know very well, but generally don't. And that's the part that I've spent my life working with, and that is stories, the stories we have about who we are. And it's these stories that make us happy or unhappy. We're always telling stories about other selves. We're very unreliable narrators about our own stories. Um, and we can really work with the stories we have uh, about ourselves. So the being part is a big mystery. Uh, when we get rid of the storyteller, when we see the illusion to some extent that the bundler is, and we, we I, I want to say, fall into mere being, there's a kind of bliss there that the Buddhists have talked about, but of that, nothing can be said. <laughs> And then the bundler is something that we're always working on and can find out more about. Um, But we really have a big moral responsibility for these stories. And um, I think it it behooves us to to examine our stories and to to know them better. What are the stories we're telling about ourselves? Thank you so much. Um, next up, Anil Anantaswami, could you please
0: let us know if it's possible for us to know ourselves?
4: Thank you, Mary Jane. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be having this discussion with everyone. Uh, well, I guess, uh, first of all, the answer to that question depends on what one means by the self. And I guess we'll come to more clearly defining the self in the course of this discussion, I'm sure. Uh, but if the self is a neurobiological process and not a thing, and I think it's a neurological process, then the answer to the question is yes, it is possible to know ourselves to some extent, but even hidden in that question is that word us. If, if by us we mean humanity in general, right, then I think we'll eventually come to some sort of understanding of this neurobiological process that begets the cell, which again we need to define more clearly as we go along. But if by us we mean an individual, you know, whether or not a given individual can understand himself or herself, then the answer is more nuanced. I think the ability to understand aspects of oneself, the the kind of aspects that Betty Sue was just talking about is itself a cognitive process. And just like all cognitive abilities, this too will lie on a distribution. Most of us will be average. Some of us will be better at it and others not. So, and you know, I can think of monks Uh, let's give them the benefit of doubt that they are better at knowing themselves than others. So they're on one end of the distribution and then there are narcissists on the other side. So and hopefully most of us are neither monks nor narcissists. Uh, um, and, but what are we trying to understand here? And maybe here we can kind of think of, of a sort of a high-level view of what I think neuroscientists, philosophers, and theologians are trying to understand. Um, you know, one of the things we know about ourselves intuitively uh, is the sense of being a body, a feeling that this body is mine, a sense of body ownership a feeling of being an agent of my actions, a feeling that whatever I perceive is being perceived by me. Uh, all of these te- statements seem rather obvious, but trying to explain them neuroscientifically uh, is not that easy. Uh, so the question of why is, this, why is there this perceived unity, uh, this so-called synchronic unity, uh, is, uh, is an important question. There's also another kind of unity, again, something that Betty Sue referred to, Um, You know, uh, whether we are thinking about our childhood and recalling events, experiencing emotions, and, you know, uh, about our remembered past, or doing the same for some imagined uh, future self, there is this feeling that there exists the same entity which is experiencing either the remembered self or the imagined self. And there is this notion of diachronic unity, a unity over time of some experiencing entity. Uh, So the attempts at understanding the self are really about trying to understand why is this feeling of unity uh, there at all? And, uh, and I, I imagine during this discussion, we'll un, uh, unpack these things and come to some understanding of what the self is and whether how much of that is understandable by us as individuals and how much of that is understandable as uh, you know a human enterprise.
0: Fantastic, thank you so much. Venti, would you please uh, approach this question? Is it possible for us to know ourselves?
5: Thank you. Uh, and I, I like the positivity in the room that uh, in some ways, all three of you are uh, hopeful that we can uh, know ourselves. Uh, I'm gonna be thoroughly and utterly negative. So I'm gonna say that we cannot, it's not possible for us to know ourselves. It's dangerous. It's potentially extremely dangerous to, uh, to try to do so. And neither is it desirable. It's it's not something we should uh, try to do. And I'm gonna give two reasons for why it's uh, not possible and uh, can lead to all kinds of complications. One of them is that uh, we're extremely invested and biased when it comes to to knowing ourselves, uh, because it's us. We're trying not to have any negative opinions of ourselves. So, um, So there is something that psychologists call the psychological immune system, and the idea there is that if, there's, if you're bombarded with the negative information about ourselves, then we're just going to swat them away because we don't want to have negative information about ourselves. So, uh, so self-knowledge is uh, not like other kinds of knowledge. Other kinds of knowledge, you could try to be neutral. When it comes to self-knowledge, it's very difficult to be neutral. You're always uh, invested and it always distorts uh, any kind of attempt at knowledge. The second reason um, is that um, the self changes. We change all the time. And there's a lot of uh, um, interesting social psychology uh, experiments that shows, show this um, from one year to the other in five-year uh, periods. There's just enormous changes that we undergo in all kinds of ways, including personality traits, uh, including very, the, you know, the most touchy-feely, our most touchy-feely uh, cherished taste in music and in literature and in film, huge changes. Nonetheless, we are very good at dismissing that we can change in the future. That's again, a celebrated social psychology uh, finding uh, that goes under the title of the end of history illusion. We all acknowledge that we changed a lot in the last five years, but in the next five years, we're not gonna change at all. So the, the self changes, whereas our self-image does not change. So that again, leads to a kind of systemic distortion of any kind of attempt at self-knowledge. So that's, th- these are the two reasons why self-knowledge is always gonna be pretty poor, and also, it's potentially dangerous because if our self-knowledge tells us that we are much better people than what we actually are because of the psychological immune system, then that's just going to uh, mess up the way we're going to uh, make decisions. And the final thing I want to say is that why, why, why should we think that self-knowledge is something that we should be going after? Knowledge is an intellectual relationship to something that we know uh, is this the kind of relation you want to have to yourself? I mean, I, I, I would want to say that there's a much more unmediated, much more direct relation that you, that you can have to yourself, uh, which would not really constitute knowledge in the sense of uh, this kind of intellectual relation, but rather some form of um, emotional link to yourself that's not uh, premised on what kind of uh, properties you attribute to yourself.
0: This is fantastic, thank you all. You've effectively given us a map of the conversation that we are going to have, actually all of you. So what I'd like to do now is to dive down into little moments that each of you has already raised. Um, The first question around which we're going to be structuring our conversation is uh, what is the self? What is the self? Um, In particular, is it real? or is it an illusion? And in what sense is it either real or an illusion? Um, and Anil, you, said, you you brought us here already. So I'd like to start with you, if, if it would be all right, to dive deeper into this question of what a self is. Um, you, you've, you've suggested that there's a there's a synchronic element and there's a diachronic element to this feeling that we have some kind of unity um, is, do we take that should we take that feeling seriously <laughs> or is that some sort of illusion and how could we know either what, what is the, what is this thing that's feeling that um...
4: yeah so the word illusion is uh, used very loosely you know because the moment you say that it's an illusion then you have to ask the question who is experiencing that illusion and then the whole thing fall or, falls apart so i think um, this, the the thing that i was talking about this perceived sense of being someone or something uh, the phenomenal self is what philosophers call it That is very real. There is no denying that we experience ourselves as we do. Uh, You know, the forms of the unity of experience, whether it's the unity of experience in the moment or over time, is real. I mean, I'm talking about how it feels. And so that's certainly to be taken seriously and and needs to be explained neurobiologically, neuroscientifically, uh, philosophically and otherwise. Um, the, The thing that usually when people are arguing about whether the self is real or not, uh, the, the straw man that is often set up and then knocked down rather easily is this idea of the ontological self like is this is the self a substance uh, that is uh, as real as the electrons and protons that make up the body uh, so like for instance if if one were to die um, uh, then you know all that's left behind is matter but along with that matter is there something else that's left behind so and uh, you know it can be called in an aspect of the self, and that's the ontological self, and that's rather easy to deny and and knock down. But oftentimes the debate is set up as you know trying to say that there is something ontological about the self. It's part of the furniture of the universe as it's made up. Uh, and uh, I think you will f- it'll you'll find it hard pressed to find anyone who will today subscribe to the ontological self. So our task really is to explain why does this experience of a phenomenal self come about, and that is certainly real.
0: And why does it keep feeling like an ontological self? Because that does seem to be the default position—that right? there is a self there, that there's some kind of substance there. Um, Benza, would you say? Would you? Would you disagree with this idea, or would you? Would you affirm this—that the phenomenal self is real, the the perception of self is where we experience ourselves this way, and therefore?
5: No, no I, I really like that that way of uh, of, of the distinction uh, that that um, that Daniel was making. I guess my my point is that this phenomenal self or. Uh, the way we experience ourselves is just has very little to do with uh, our behavior and our preferences, our actual behavior and actual preferences.
0: Can you give an example of that? How, how our, our phenomenal self is is at odds with our actual experiences? Uh, yeah.
5: So there's, there's a lot of neat experiments that show that people think of themselves as way more generous than they actually are. They're way more, uh, they're better drivers. Um, they, are, uh, they are more caring friends than they actually are. And so, on. so, I mean, we're, it, 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 I think that that's just, um, it's mis- the way we think of ourselves. And again, the, the emphasis on thinking, that's kind of an intellectual relation is just, it's going to be an idealized version of who we actually are.
0: Uh, so I'd that, love at this point to throw this over to Betty Sue and say, <laughs> um, is, is <laughs> Ben saying that we tell stories about ourselves and that they're wrong or something yeah. like that?
3: Yeah, I, I think that they are inevitably uh, wrong. <laughs> the fictions, they're not the whole truth. And a lot of times they're, they're completely uh, self-interested, as uh, ben Say has been at pains to point out. Uh, Bensee has said that there is no phenomenal self. Um, I, I would split that and go back to what um, uh, Anil said, because I think science can study the phenomenal self. Um, I think psychology often deals with the stories we tell, the fictional self, and those are the ones that really get us into trouble. Because um, if we don't examine those, uh, <laughs> we we live out of this uh, sense that we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but not other people. That's what I'm saying about the unreliable narrator. The stories we tell are self-interested, and um, if we had a little more humility about. And, and examine them as stories, we might be kinder. We might give other people the benefit of the doubt. We do give children the benefit of the doubt all the time, but we don't give each other as adults that benefit of the doubt. So using a different language, I'm, I'm agreeing with, with both um, Anil and Binsett because I, I think that on the one hand, science can study the, the, the phenomena on the other hand, at the level of stories, we're danger to ourselves and each other, and we need—we can work on that. We can. So the trick is to to tell better stories, or the trick, or better, more accurate stories, or kinder stories. <laughs> the... uh, all of the above, but yeah. mostly to be aware of the story you're telling about yourself and other people, and uh, to question those stories. As stories, Our literary criticism comes in handy here. <laughs> We're very contradictory with the stories we tell. Ian, where are we?
2: I, I wholly um, agree that we, we, we need to tell stories about ourselves, but of course I'd want to make quite clear that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're just mistaken. There are better and worse stories. And in fact, life can only be understood as a whole, never mind the self, by myths and stories and narratives. There is no alternative. People who think that they have a way of looking at it that doesn't have some such myth usually, usually have bought into whatever the myth of the age is, which is that it's just a heap of mechanical stuff that is best understood by being reduced to its parts. And that's a myth too. That's just not a very good one. So we do tell these myths. Um, I don't agree with Ben, say, on much, uh, really, because he seems so extraordinarily black and white. Um, the picture is subtler than that. And and um, it's quite true that we deceive ourselves. Of course, we deceive ourselves about many things, but not to make the attempt to see more truly it doesn't follow logically from the fact that we often deceive ourselves. I think some people are actually very good at knowing themselves. I have known many in in my life. Some people seem to have no talent for it at all. It's a matter of degree and it varies. Also, the point about change. Yes, but everything changes, everything flows, but it doesn't necessarily become something utterly different. I think the extent to which uh, change was stressed there, exaggerated things so badly that it almost um uh, reached the conclusion that it wanted to reach by just saying well you change so much there's no continuity of the self I, I would say that doesn't stand up philosophically or psychologically nor do I think that it's dangerous to do so um, because you will, you will take a very high opinion of yourself. I've worked a lot of my life with people who take a rather poor opinion of themselves, much poorer than they need to. Um, and getting it right is important. Getting it wrong is dangerous, yes. But you don't have to get it wrong. That whole premise is, is far too simplistic and overdriven. And finally, I don't know what country Bernsé comes from, but in most languages other than English, we make a distinction in kinds of knowledge. There is knowledge in the sense of German Wissen and French Savoir, but there is also knowledge in the sense of German Kennen and French Connaître. And it is that process that we need to exercise in getting to know ourselves. It's not an alienating one. It is a human one, one that has relationship in it. And I just finally like to say about the the question of the bundle and the idea of the problem of how do these bits come together uh synchronously or di- diachronically. This is in in my view a mistake built on the The way in which we now conceive the world very strongly the way in which the left hemisphere of the brain tries to organize and understand knowledge, which is to take it apart and see a world of fragments, Uh, its attention is very um, uh, narrow beam and just to detail at a time, so it, it sees the world as inevitably something that's got to be put together again by the human intellect. Whereas if you are able to stand back from that position and see it has already never divided into, into tiny fragments, but actually a whole, with distinguishable zones, areas, fields, whatever you like within it, but not ultimately severed one from another, then that problem doesn't arise. You experience the world synchronously and diachronically as part of a self, because you are a self. It's when a certain kind of very analytic, slightly autistic form of thinking is brought to bear on the idea of the self, that it falls apart. I wrote about that in The Master and His Emissary*, and I've written more about it in The Matter with Things.
0: So thank you, Ian. I I think I'll use this as a a hinge onto our next question. What I'd like to just mark uh, is the distinction between talking about an individual self and a collective self. And we may want to ask as we, as we keep going, uh, whether the collective uh, self, the, the, the us in this conversation is just an individual writ large or whether there's some kind of difference in structure between these two things or some sort of structural relationship that's more complicated than just a reduplication. Um, so let's, let's head into the next question. And Benza, why don't we just throw this right back to you? Um, the, the, the next question is, if it's the case that at least we don't have any kind of ontologically stable self, is it, in fact, important to give up on the quest of knowing ourselves? Ian says absolutely not. He says some people are very good at knowing themselves, um, particularly in that sense of the German canon and the French Connet. Um, how do you stand on this, Spencer? What would you say? Would you say that? Would you agree or disagree with?
5: So I, I really liked Anil's um, on, on uh, starting answer about the distinction between the ontological and phenomenal self, and and how we um, have no reason to deny the, the, the kind of phenomenal self that um, there's a certain way we. We're, uh, we think of ourselves. So, so psychologists often call it the self-image or something like that. And um, we do have that. And, and, I, and I loved Betty Sue's uh, line on that, about how that's all made up of narratives and that these narratives tend to be wrong. And really what we can do is not to replace one narrative with another. I, I think that's an extremely crucial point, but rather uh, you have to just take those, narr- those stories less seriously. And I think that's just, it's really important. Just take, take the stories that we tell ourselves, i.e. this kind of self-knowledge stuff, less seriously. And I, and I think that that's a really important thing. And let me tell you why. Uh, and I'm gonna appeal to authority here and the authority is André Gide. And he, he has this really nice one-liner about how if the caterpillar were to know itself, it would never become a butterfly. And that goes back to the point about change. It also goes a little bit back about different kinds of knowledge, not the kind of uh, linguistic distinction that Ian was uh, talking about, which I don't find particularly um, helpful or amusing, but rather uh, knowledge can. You, so you you are pushing us to say more about the self. What is the self? I think that's an important question. But what is really also important? What is knowledge? And I've been taught. I've been taking it for granted that knowledge is some kind of uh, intellectual relationship to ourselves. So. Uh, you know, the same way as I know, uh, you know, I know facts about British politics uh, or about the, um, the American um, electoral system. I also know uh, myself. So the same, the similar kind of, um, of 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 knowledge. In that case, I can uh, I can have I can attribute certain features to myself that I take to be important. And we, again, we have a bunch, a huge amount of social psychology that shows that many of these features are going to be taken to be essential features of the self. So if they, if you ask me uh, that this is the actual experimental setup, they ask subjects, well, if tomorrow you're going to wake up as a little bit taller than you are, would it still be you? If you, if you woke up tomorrow as blonde, as, uh, I don't know, as a heavy metal fan, as a Republican, as uh, a Buddhist, would that still be you? And then you can kind of trace what, how, what, what are the features that people uh, attribute themselves, that they take to be the defining features. And it's very difficult to avoid thinking of, self, of yourself as having these kind of defining features. You think of yourself as a, as a professor, as a liberal, as a vegetarian, and so on. But this is exactly the kind of self-knowledge that, uh, that Andrigit was talking about. If you're kind of labeling yourself like this, and it is true that you're changing all the time, you're changing, Your labeling yourself does not change. So eventually, you're, there's going to be this huge conflict between who you are and who you think you are. And that is uh, what's preventing you from becoming a butterfly, all right, I'm done.
0: I know. To, will you come back to this and 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 say where you where you are with respect to this notion of the the, the importance of this quest of knowledge of, of knowing ourselves and the question of whether what we mean by knowledge is an intellectual knowledge of self.
4: I mean, like the the discussion we're having about you know uh, this idea that we are stories. Uh, so that's that's the answer that you get when you, if you ask somebody, "Who are you?" are most likely to get a story about themselves. And the stories can change from time to time, from situation to situation. But there is something kind of interesting here, even in, the, in, in our assertion that these stories are not necessarily important and that self-knowledge is not important because the very act of understanding that we are stories is itself already a process of self-knowledge. I mean, I don't see how uh, you know that is not important. And so it's it's always a question of degrees. I mean, there are some people who are going to be much more aware of the stories that they are and some people much less so. The question is how beholden are you to the story that you are in terms of your emotional reaction to your environment? Again, some people cannot be separated from their stories. The other others have the ability to kind of insert this little piece of paper between, you know, this story and their emotional reactions. And uh, I, I think it, it's, you know, people are different and everyone will react differently. To the stories that they are, and the st- stories that they were, and are becoming, and all of those things, um, and to take on that a uh, very lovely kind of uh, image that uh, Ben said brought up about uh, a caterpillar: if it knew that it would become a butterfly, it would, you know, not do so. If I understood that argument correctly. Um, I mean, if you look at the neurobiological processes, there is no way that a caterpillar would ever know that it could become a b- butterfly,
5: period. Sorry to interrupt, but that was not the, that was not the way Jid G- was thinking. By the way, I, I agree with everything you said so far, and I think that is really important to emphasize that that uh, yes, the, the very act of, of, of labeling yourself is already known. So, um, so the Jid idea was that the caterpillar in its own self knowledge, its all knowing itself. Oh, I'm caterpillar. This is who. This is who I am. I'm. Ca- I'm caterpillaring here. Mm-hmm. That that kind of con- that's a constraining kind of mindset, and that that does not allow the caterpillar to become about to to change into something better. I I see You're, uh, metaphorically you mean yeah exactly. Uh,
4: and and that's I think that's true again for all, all of us that there are limits to uh, you know um, Ian was talking about this that he has. Uh, Talked to many of his patients, I presume, who have uh, you know um, disruptions of their self in in various aspects, and I've written extensively about this too. Where you know, if if someone with uh, is suffering from severe schizophrenia, for instance, they they can lack a sense of agency, or or you know, and and we take agency as pretty implicit and normal. So if I'm doing something, there is an implicit feeling of being an agent of my actions. And we consider that as a part of our self. And it turns out that that, you know, simple taken for granted aspect of ourselves comes apart in certain neuropsychological conditions. So, uh, but for the the point is that that knowledge of uh, the fact that it's your schizophrenia that's causing the lack of agency is not enough to overcome the grief that's caused by the lack of agency. So I think we have to distinguish between Uh, knowledge that can influence behavior and knowledge that couldn't possibly have any effect on the physical organism. So if the lack of agency is being disrupted by some low-level neurochemical, I mean, uh, biochemical uh, process, then cognitive knowledge is not enough to undo that. But there are other things where cognitive knowledge might be enough to undo certain aspects of ourselves. So uh, I just sit in, in a place where I say that, you know, none of this is black and white. Uh, I think we're always on some gradation of capacities and capabilities. And, uh, you know, either, either in, in terms of the population or even during the course of an individual's life. And uh, we can't be really, you know, hard-nosed about this.
0: So on this question of an individual's life, let me try to get um, very concrete and um, say that at my, the end of my last lecture at university, I had this notoriously brilliant, very grouchy professor um, who looked at all of us and he said, uh, good luck out there in the world. Don't try to find yourselves. There is no self to find. <laughs> yeah. um, but he said, could I ask you, does the status of the self invalidate the, the, the quest, the search, it, would, you still, would you recommend to young folks that they go out and try to figure out who they are? And, in what, and what, how would you say that if you would? What, would, what language would you use?
3: no i would never say that there's no self to find. I, I think there's a self to make you might have a story in which you are generally a depressed person and then science tells you that your microbiome of its 500 species of bacteria there are three of them that you know are messing you up and then suddenly you're not depressed anymore so is that a story about the self yeah well it's your planet that is being inhabited by all the anyway i i think it's more complicated than that there's no self to i i even though that's true in one sense, that there's no object out there like an Easter egg that you're gonna find under a bush. And uh, to have such as, in fact, to have such um, an illusion uh, can actually be damaging because you, you never, you, you're never fulfilled. But I, I'm enough of a Jungian to think that there is, there are patterns there that, are, um, that you can live into that you can accumulate, that you can see, that symbols enrich your life. And there's so much there that can be part of that bundle of self and that your story then can kind of shrivel as a story. Uh, you, You become less dependent on the story of yourself as the ego becomes less interesting to you. And as you're in the world of being more and the self gets broader, which is not something you own like you own your story. So there's a lot more to be said about that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Ian, can I ask you
0: to weigh in on this? Um, the, the idea that there may be no self to find, but there is a self to make and a bundler to be aware of. That was lovely. There may be no self to find, but there is a self to make. Um, do, you, do you agree with this? What, and what would be the connection between such, or the relationship between such making and the process of connaître, for example, about that kind of knowledge? Or are they different things?
2: The the I do believe that the soul is something that is making and therefore, in a way, it is always changing. Uh, the, The difficulty I had is the with the concept that because it's changing it has no continuity or no reality everything changes everything in the universe changes but things do have degrees of continuity and they do have degrees of individuality although they may never be entirely separate from other things so it's getting back into the realm of nuance and a matter of degrees in which things that look like opposites are both important and away from too cut and dried um, a View one thing I like very much is uh, Keats is saying, I mean, what a wise young man he was. Uh, that this is a world of soul making, a veil, in fact, of soul making. And what he meant there is that it's a process that we grow our souls and we can stunt them because we can grow them, we can also stunt them. And I think that's what. Betty Sue was referring to, was that, you you know, given a certain way of um, being taught to think about the self, you can actually use that as part of what I consider a central aspect of life, growing the self, nourishing the self, making the self a better self, uh, or um, stunting it entirely. And I think that there is something dangerous, in fact, in the idea that we don't have a self, because I think that is nihilistic. And as I said earlier on, I think one of the problems more broadly with our society is that we no longer have the faintest idea what a human being is. We don't know who we are generally, never mind who an individual is. One thing I'd just like to throw in from a psychiatrist's point of view here is that, as it's been pointed out by Carrie Havel, it's often through... um, the, the absence of something or when something goes wrong, that you really learn what it is that was there or, or is, is no longer there. And when you meet people who have utterly lost a sense of the self and are actually aware of what they're missing, they may even never have had one, um, rather like the phenomenon which is extraordinary, that people who are born without certain limbs can have a sense Of a limb, they can have a phantom limb, which they never actually in life experience, And it's not an exact analogy, of course, but there's something like this about the self that those who don't have the self are so destroyed and so distressed and so dysfunctional, you then see what actually the self is and what it gives to life. So I think it's a very important point. And I I think that, I don't know whether the distinction between the phenomenological self and the ontological self here is a very helpful one because I tend myself towards the school of phenomenological philosophy in which there is not some sort of other self that's more real than the self that you actually experience. That is the self. There isn't some special laboratory um, detectable thing that underlies or underwrites its nature anyway just those are just some thoughts about that no
0: that's mm-hmm. very helpful and i want to use something that you said Ian, to get us into our third question which is to say um the big problem here not just in terms of any uh, individuals healing but but Uh, sociologically um, is that we don't know you said who we are let alone what a self is we we, we don't know what we're talking about necessarily and um, it's here that um, it seems that neuroscience and the philosophy of mind seem to promise that we'll eventually get there that we're on our way to some uh, either a neuroscientific uh, vision of the self that um, and of selves uh, that can hold that we can all agree on or that philosophy of mind might do it um, I'd like to ask our speakers, starting with Betty Sue, um, do, you, uh, do you hold out hope that there may be some kind of reconciliation of all these different metaphors of self in neuroscience and philosophy of mind and either of them?
3: Um, and would this make any difference to the way that we live our lives? I think the question's gonna get more complicated, frankly. I think the more science we do, the more we're going to find really deep issues. I recently Absolutely. saw a demonstration of GPT-3, that uh, AI that can write. And I have a dear friend who is writing a paper using Greek myth and psychology. He's a psychology professor. And we sat on the Zoom with the GPT-3 and he fed in the first part of his very distinctive, I would recognize it as his voice paper. And the GPT-3, the AI finished it in his voice, I checked it out with a classics professor friend of mine. He got all the references right. Now, this is a very, this was very hard to read the second part of the paper. It was very hard for me because somehow the idea of a self and the idea of a, of a recognizable identity, or or I don't know what you would call it, are meshed. Uh, Maybe they shouldn't be, but the whole issue of AI and, These um, folks who don't know whether they're talking to a real human being or an AI and the AI understands understands them better, these complicate the questions of what is a self, it seems to me. So (laughs) I don't see an answer to these questions very soon. I think it's like (laughs) physics. The more you know, the more you know, you don't know. No, this is great. Who would jump? Who would like to jump in here? I mean,
0: does does the um, please? I know.
4: <laughs> I, I I think uh, Betty Sue brings up something very interesting when it comes to AI. Uh, let me just first uh, say that in terms of understanding what kind of begets the self, the the neuro neurobiological processes, I think we'll get there as as uh, you know as humanity will understand. A lot about it. Whether that will have an impact on an individual's behavior, I'm here with Ben. Say to a large extent that this is not going to be easy to affect change on the individual level. Um, and then, because I, I think the the process of the self the, the, as it manifests in each of us is kind of a runaway process. It's not it's not really tied in by the kind of negative feedback processes in engineering control systems. Like so, uh, I'm much more pessimistic about humanity's progression uh, in terms of whether we'll ever be able to make use of this knowledge for our benefit. I am optimistic about the fact that we'll gain the knowledge. Whether that'll be useful or not is a different issue. Uh, And and the the AI question is really intriguing because I think uh, this is something that I've been looking into for the last few years. And I think a lot of these questions that we have about The self as a process will become more and more clear as we build AI systems that start manifesting the same aspects, and we'll we'll see very clearly that all these things that we take uh, to be very human and very uh, uh, emblematic of us as um, biological organisms will fall by the wayside, eventually. Maybe not in 50 years, but in 100 years or 200 years, certainly.
0: Vincent, can I ask if you agree with this, that AI systems will help us understand better what's going on with selfhood, but it may not be useful knowledge. Well,
5: I think that the general uh, kind of conglomerate um, science of cognitive science will definitely uh, help us understand a lot of things. And, uh, you know, the the dream of cognitive science in the 80s was that it's going to be this kind of unified science where psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers, AI people, they all work together and that... uh, know started promising it's not been uh as uh maybe maybe it's falling apart a little bit but i i I believe that that's the way we should think about the mind that we shouldn't we should not you know i'm a philosopher but i think um, that i would be a bad philosopher if i were not paying attention to what neuroscientists say about the the brain and what psychologists say and the the dream is to bring all these uh snippets of knowledge together and uh try to use as many possible routes to knowledge um, um, as, and then combine them to, to understand how, how, how the mind works.
0: That, 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 I think you're about to head to it because I was going to say, does this not stand at some sort of some odds um, with your hope that, that the importance that you put upon changing? Right. No, it's so, so I,
5: I, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, in the scientific inquiry about the human mind and human brain. And we, we find out more and more about how the mind, it's just, you know, especially neuroscience, giant leaps in understanding, especially uh, sensor, sensory and motor processes. So um, I'm a big believer that that yeah, we are getting closer to understanding how the mind works. Are we getting close to how understanding self-knowledge? I'm not so sure. So uh, there's many ways in which we, we relate to ourselves. Uh, there's this kind of knowledge relation that I've been trying to argue that it's just, it's, that's really not something we should be really going for. Uh, it's the kind of constructing airtight stories about ourselves, right, so that as, as, um, as Betty Sue would say. Um, and again, I'm not sure that, that here uh, some kind of unified cognitive science is going to, uh, to help us a lot. But there's other ways which we can relate to ourselves. There's a very obvious perceptual way of relating to ourselves. Uh, and the sense of self and there's a lot of uh, very neat experiments that very clearly uh, help us understand how uh, how we relate to ourselves in a tactile or in a kind of perceptual way. Um, and there's also an emotional relation to ourselves that I think uh, uh, we could be uh, we could have been talking about and which I think is a really important one And again we, we are begin, beginning to understand more and more about this and then I, what I love about the way the discussion was heading to although we didn't really go down further that way is this self-making aspect about how, uh, much of what we're doing is not somehow re- recovering some kind of, or uncovering some kind of self that exists there, but making ourselves into some, into some person. The decisions that we're making, the choices we're making are creating what, what the self is going to be. I think that's a really crucial thing. And again, I think there's some um, signs some, some that, uh, that the empirical sciences are, uh, especially in terms of the decision-making, the decision science, uh, they are, uh, they're helping us understanding how that works. So I'm very optimistic about some kind of, you know, in, interpersonal, some kind of um, understanding uh, of uh, how the mind works, but that doesn't mean that we should be all can call about uh, self-knowledge.
0: <laughs> Ian, can I ask you to, to weigh in on this issue of the empirical sciences um, and where they're going and how, how you uh, how you estimate that the progress um, in, in particularly in neuroscience?
2: A way of looking at the world from, the outside inspecting material entities in the cosmos but the self is not like that the self is a matter of experience and is inevitably approached as it were from within experience uh, i i don't say that neuroscience can't help us understand ourselves one third some 800 pages of the well, probably more like 500 pages of the book that I've just written is purely on neuroscience. But the conclusion I would draw is not that neuroscience will tell us whether we have a self or not. The Neuroscience tells us something else, which is that parts of our brain can deceive us in certain ways about things like what science can tell us and about things like what the self is. And the stories that, neuroscience could tell us would inevitably be of the kind invented by the left hemisphere of the brain which is interested in the mechanisms the procedures as viewed externally but that is not what the life of a human being is and that's not what a a self is. And i just like to say it's a very important point that just because one grows something doesn't mean one made it up. There are things that one can grow and there are things that one can stunt, but it doesn't mean we just made them all up out of nowhere. A, a very important point is the idea that um, values, for example, might be what are they they're just things that we happen to like and we don't like so we call these good and bad and we call those beautiful and ugly and so on this doesn't in any way explain the existence of it explains the decisions in particular cases we make but it doesn't explain the existence of such a thing as goodness or beauty in the cosmos and i with derek Carfitt, believe who after all was a very hard-nosed anglo-american analytic philosopher that values are ontological primitives they're not accountable for in other terms they are if you like intrinsic in the cosmos and that what we do with them how we respond to them is what matters and that's just a very clear example of a case where people say we could make it all up or we have made it all up to cheer us up but I don't believe these things are like that I believe that we respond to something that the universe is a matter of relationship, not just entities in isolation. That we respond to things and by our response, we may help them come more into being or not come into being we are in a creative universe physicists say this all the time there's nothing at all unusual in physics here biology needs to catch up on that. And that's where neuroscience is not philosophically as sophisticated as physics and could easily um, come to the conclusion that it can tell us something about whether we have a self or not. I say it cannot.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.